Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com Helge Peterson is one of the few riders that have crossed the Darien Gap by motorcycle, riding it, pushing it, pulling, whatever it takes to get it across the gap. And he did that during his 10 years of traveling around the world on his R80GS. After that 10 years, he was thoroughly addicted to travel by motorcycle, and yet at the same time, he knew it was time to get off the road. Why would he want to get off the road, and how is he going to do it? Well, we're going to talk about this and a whole bunch more coming up. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tart. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. It's been said that the bike that really kicked off the adventure motorcycle industry was the BMW R80GS. It was a new concept when it was introduced back in 1980, and it was the first large displacement motorcycle designed for on- and off-road use. The GS and the BMW R80GS stands for off-road, on-road in German. Now, the timing couldn't have been better for Helge Peterson because he was getting ready to go on a motorcycle adventure when he was told about the R80GS. And he spent 10 years traveling on that R80GS and becoming totally addicted to travel. My name is Helge Pedersen. I'm from 
Kristiansand in Norway. And I run a company called Globe Riders. You know, it, I think it's my father's fault because he subscribed to the National Geographic magazine. I didn't understand English growing up, but I understood pictures. And we had kind of a, a little special bonding time. I sat next to him and we flipped through National Geographic. He translated, told some stories, and I admired the pictures. And start dreaming about traveling. Fast forward, I had some friends that ride motorcycle. They got me into it. And the rest is history. Helge, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. That's a really early age to be fascinated by travel and all from National Geographic. It really, it was from just the desire to see what you saw in the photographs. I think so, because uh, my father was very much an outdoor person. He also had motorcycles till he met my mom, and that was the end of motorcycle career. <laughs> and, to uh, many. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and then... Uh, I think also being a Boy Scout, uh, growing up in Norway, we did a lot of outdoor stuff, all the adventures, kayaking, hiking, uh, and it just got me out in nature and uh, were very curious. But I really believe that it was, that seed was planted through National Geographic. I blame it on my father and them. <laughs> but your parents, they weren't into traveling? Uh, we didn't have the money for it. Not so much. You have to remember my father fought the uh, Second World War uh, in the resistance movement in Norway against the Germans for five years. And they were building up the country and, you know, kind of struggled to get along. And then, uh, yeah, we did travel within Norway, but international travels was too expensive. You also went as an exchange student when you were a kid to the United States. Absolutely. I think that is... if. Every kid, every uh, teenager in the world could do an exchange program. I think we would have a better place today because that opened my eyes to see not only I went to Los Angeles, to California, but not only to see Americans or meet the American culture, but I met so many other exchange students from all over the world. And the program was AFS, American Field Service, stayed one year with a family and it was a fantastic experience. I think that took my travel desires to a much higher level after that. How old were you then? I was 17, 18. I graduated from uh, Eagle Rock High School, which is between Glendale and Pasadena, for those that know California. So I stayed with the family there, and it was a fantastic family. Did you know English when you came? I did. You know, you have to learn it, and I hated it (laughs) when I went to school. (laughs) I didn't like to study language, but of course it gave me a huge boost staying for a year. So when I came home, I was very comfortable and all of a sudden I got really nice grades in English. Go figure. Huh? Yeah. I mean, so the experience, once you've done it, like you go and live with a different family and everything. Yeah. That has to completely change the way you look at things. Absolutely. You know, the motivation, I saw that even if you then jump forward to like, yeah, we're in South America, I tried to study Spanish, no motivation. Sitting there on my motorcycle in Patagonia, all of a sudden, 
I'm counting uno, dos, tres, buenos dias, <laughs> and, you know, just shouting in my helmet. And every time I meet somebody, my vocabulary gets bigger and bigger. It's all about motivation for sure. Do you still do that now when you go to different countries? Are you still trying to learn other languages? Oh, absolutely. But I do realize that as I'm getting older, it feels like it's slower and slower that uh, I can pick it up. But, you know, I just came from the Himalayas two months and uh, Chinese or Bhutanese or, or Myanmar. You know, I try to pick up at least the greetings and numbers. But... I, I feel comfortable in four languages, and then I know some phrases in other ones, but I wish I knew much, much more. You uh, purchased a, an R80 GS. What made you buy that bike? Well, when I started out thinking about this tour, the R80 GS didn't exist, at least not in the public's eye. The BMW were working on it, and then I was at a motorcycle rally down in uh, Italy, and I've been planning next, the following year, I wanted to go traveling and I was not sure what bike. I had an R100 slash seven, I was riding then, that's a BMW. And uh, my friend come and say, oh, Helge, you can't believe they got this R80 GS, they imported two to Norway and he just bought one. And I hurried back home, bought the second one that was imported in 1981 to Norway. And that became Olga, my traveling birdie. And, you know, it was a natural at that time. Such a adventure bike didn't exist nowhere. And I was a big fan of BMW already. So it was very lucky and good timing. It would be an untried thing, though. I mean, like you said, there was no adventure motorcycling industry at that point. And you're buying a bike that's sort of the first one to show up on the scene as that. I mean, I think it was. There was no competition for that, was there? You know, people used other kind of bikes and modified them and stuff. But uh, that, I think, became the status quo or what, I don't know how to say it in English, but the, the one that was really kicked it off. Because after that, they started to make uh, uh, big tanks. You know, I got this Heinrich tank, a uh, 10-gallon tank. That was one of the first aftermarket deals that was kicked out for a bike like that. There were no panniers. I got a boat builder that uh, made some aluminum panniers and I put on some jerry cans to be able to go through the Sahara Desert. So it was no tour tech catalog at that uh, time. It was more individuals that had to be creative. Why did you decide to do it uh, on a bike? I mean, you're, you're planning a trip. Was it, Were you planning a motorcycle trip or were you just planning a trip and decided to use a bike? No, it was actually, uh, I wanted to do a motorcycle trip and that came from my friend that corrupted me into being a motorcyclist and appreciate that. And my education was a technical photographer and I worked in 70 degrees north. It's similar to Prudhoe Bay in uh, North America uh, for three years as a photographer in a rescue helicopter service. And it was there that the dream come and said, I don't have to continue this uh, profession or this career or I take a break before I get the uh, 10 kids and the picket fence. So I decided to uh, go for an adventure. And by that time I was riding motorcycles in the summer and snowmobile in the winter. I never had a car at that time. So I sold all I had and decided I'm going to go back to the Southern Norway and plan for a year to do this. And that time I had R hundred slash seven and then the R 80 came along and, 
that what it ended up being. But it was for me doing the motorcycle thing was like it was such a freedom. And I loved nature and I was out there in nature. I could feel the cold, the heat, the rain, the dry, you know, and I just enjoyed that so much. And I felt, and I wanted to go and see something in the world before I settled down with uh, a family and stuff. So it was very natural for me to do the motorcycle thing. What was the plan? The plan was to go and visit a friend that had left to work in Kenya. And Torres Mesta was his name. And uh, he said, oh, you have come down and visit me. And I said, well, I'm going to do it by my motorcycle and I'm going to do it with a friend. But that friend uh, bailed out in the last minute and started to build boats. And while I was gone in Africa, we were communicating. And this is letters, no email, nothing at that time. This is 1982 to 84. So uh, he sent drawings of the a boat and we were going to sail around the world after I came back from Africa and that didn't happen either but the motivation was to go and see my friend in East Africa by the time I made it down there he was gone so I said I might as well go down to the tip of South America uh, South Africa uh, Southern Africa and then and I came to the tip and I had to turn around to come home so it took me two years so at this point, you're, I guess you're needing to replenish your funds. And, and did you go work for a bit? No, the thing is that I, I set off with, a, I think I had $2,400 to my name when I took off. And being a photographer, I went to some of the magazines. And you have to remember at this time, we are talking slide films that I was taking. And so I had to develop it on the road and stuff. So I want to see if I can get a contract with a magazine. Nobody, everybody said, no, no. But this ma- a couple of magazines said, hey, send your stuff, and if we like it, we will publish it and pay you. And 10 years later, I still worked for them. But uh, they paid me while I was traveling. So my friend, I organized it, so he got all the return material, the original slides were sent back to him, and money was sent to him, and he put that into my bank account. I could take it on, on my Visa card. And that's how I funded my whole trip. So I made money while I was traveling. Plus I took a few jobs. Wow, that's everybody's dream now. This has got to be one of the most common questions people ask. You know, how can I make money while I'm on the road? But the things have changed. But, but, but even when you're talking about photography, you mentioned it, these are slides. Um, photography was way different then. You're buying a, a roll of film, which is expensive, and 36 shots. Mm-hmm. And then with, yeah. with slides, with trannies, you've got to have them develop somewhere with somebody who can develop it. And not only that, that's your original. When you pop that in the mail, everything's at risk. No, you are very right today. And I love photography still. And I'm very big into the high tech of electronics and stuff. But at that time, yeah, you're right. Every time I took a picture, it was like catching 25 cents. Yeah. Because that was cost of the film and development and then sending it home. So you were very selective when you took pictures. And you had to think about how many roles you had and when you could get it next time. When I developed the film and being a technical photographer, I knew everything I could develop my own if I had the equipment. And of course, that was not an alternative, but I knew the process. So I usually went to a shop and I said, do you develop slides? Oh, yeah, they said. And then I asked to see what if they had a sample. And what I looked for was if black was black and transparent was transparent. If it was murky and stuff, 
I went to another place if I had the luxury of choosing. So many times I met actually very nice people or some got really turned off because I didn't trust I wanted to see proof. Uh, but that's what I had to do. I had to kind of investigate and see. And because, like you said, I had one shot at this. If, if they ruined it in development, pictures that I had taken in the Sahara Desert with uh, some camel and a sunset, you know, I would never be able to get them back again. Yeah, and you say about thinking before you shoot. I mean, that that's the way it was with film nowadays with digital photography. I mean, we, everybody just shoots like crazy and you throw out a bunch of stuff. Well, unfortunately, the it's the, the process of sorting them afterwards that, that gets arduous. I think so, too. I think we take at least 10 times more pictures than we used to do. And you're right, it's the post-production that really gets Yeah, that drags you down. To you. But, but So this was your Africa trip. After this, you went home. Yeah, I... Uh, I did a loop and I come back home and uh, and when I came home, I remember I had like $50 to my, I never went broke. I never were without funds, but I wanted to get home, get reorganized because my, my friend were going to have the boat and we were going to sail around the world. Well, the day I came home, his no, uh, which is his wife today, uh, had their first baby. So that changed the game for him. And I said, well, I really like this motorcycling and uh, I actually can make a living on it. Not a good living, but it gets the wheel turning. So I kind of reorganized over winter and then I contacted the shipping company and they gave me a free lift from Oslo to Buenos Aires in Argentina. And on the, I went to, with the tour. And I learned the first, a lot on the first two years. So I, I got a little better with, got a few more sponsors and a little more organized with my uh, photojournalism and stuff like that. You said that they gave you a ride on the ship. That, that's a work for passage thing? Yeah. And I think it was because I'm Norwegian and we have a lot of merchant marines and a lot of ships around the world. I did this up through the years, probably six or seven times, I think. I crossed oceans by going to the captain or going to the shipping company and say, hey, can I have a ride? Sometimes I had to work. Other times I just sit back and do nothing. Well, that, that's sort of gone now, isn't it? You're, you're not hearing that much anymore. It's, I think it's very difficult now. It's a lot of lawyers that have ruined that one. Yeah, it's funny. Technology, you know, it seems that technology is supposed to make our life better, but I think it makes it a lot more complicated. I think so too. A lot of more bureaucracy and so you, you've got on the ship, you've went to, to South America. Um, were, at that point, were you planning on crossing the Darien Gap? I had no clue. If you had said Darien Gap and I said, where's that mountain? Or, no, where's that passage? Or, you know, I had no clue what it was. That came up after I'd been almost three years in South America. And I came to Peru, Lima, uh, the capital. And I met, many times I met other photojournalists. It was a very good way of bonding and like-minded people and I got a lot of insights groups and stuff and you have to remember every month I kicked out articles to keep the wheels turning and it and it really engaged me in learning a lot so these people they tell oh when you come to Colombia you're not going to be able to drive to Panama really I said there's no road I had no clue and and then they talked about the Daring Gap but they talked about the Lipton expedition an American couple that brought uh, uh, four by four through there 
but basically they used almost 10 years to get through and they could only do it in the dry season. It's a long story, but that's how that come about. And I said, oh, I will look into that. I read the story they had written about them and it scared me a little, intimidated me a little, but it also said, I knew that it would cost me more money. I was thinking money, how to get to Panama, if I'm gonna fly or take a boat. So perhaps if they could take a car, why couldn't I take a motorcycle through? But you're by yourself. Yeah, initially I was by myself, but I came there and I needed a permit to go through National Park of Cristales, which is in, on the Colombian side. And the, and the park ranger were really nice. And he said, you know, you have to have a special permit to take the bike there, uh, but it's too much rain, I'll come back in a month. And you know, normally when you say that, come back in a month for people, uh, that's a problem. And I said, no, that's a great opportunity to see Colombia. So I traveled around and in a bar at the hotel where I, I never stayed in hotels, but sometimes you could camp in the backyard of a hotel and use their facilities, which I did. And this uh, bartender, this girl, she said, hey, I have a, this guy come from Encounter Overland in Britain and he walks special custom tour to walk people through the dying gap. You should meet him. He have a lot of information. He'd be here in two weeks. So the timing was great and met him, got a lot of information, made a map. If you ever see my book, 10 Years on Two Wheels, you will see I have the drawing, the map in the book and that's how I got through the Darien. Describe the Darien Gap. Well, it is, in Spanish, it's called also El, El Paton and it is like the cork in the bottle so that keeps the opening for flooding out. So it's the only missing link of the Pan American Highway. And the reason is many. Uh, some people say it's technical. I don't think so much anymore. It's more a political issue. And uh, so they, they just kept the jungle there. And it is 80 miles stretch with pure jungle, uh, very difficult terrain. It's flooded, rained out, uh, nine to 10 months out of the year. It's only a window in uh, yeah, late January, February, early March that you can go through there and walk through there. The Indians, the locals, the Kuna and the Embora Indians, they uh, use hatches or manchetes to cut their way through and open a trail uh, during the season. And it's just very tough area to get through. It took me 20 days to get those 80 miles. 20 days to get your bike through? Yeah. Did you plan on riding it through? Well, when I talked to this fellow, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but the, the British guy said, first of all, you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. And luckily I met this German guy, Joachim Quernheim, uh, that had just been robbed and uh, had some problems in Venezuela and Colombia and they were ready to go home and I said, why don't you just help me through? And so we hit it off and he helped me. And this British guy had told me that you need tackle and pulleys because there are some very steep hills and that bike is never, you're never going to be riding it. You're going to be pushing and throwing and lifting a lot. So get, so I got 40 meters of rope and two pulleys and uh, two manchetes, which are big kind of like jungle knives that you cut through the jungle. And, uh, that's how we cleared passes and one of the first steep hills I were brave or stupid perhaps <laughs> enough to try and drive up there and my bike went up on the 
wheel, uh, back wheel and flipped backwards. I threw the bike to the right side and so it didn't crush me and I fall and I break my hand, uh, I don't say one of the, yeah, on top of my, not on the palm, but on the other side. And I didn't know it was broken. It hurt a lot. Tried to teach the German to ride because it was hard to use the clutch when that was broken. So I tried to teach a German guy, but the jungle is not the right place to teach somebody to ride a bike that never <laughs> ridden it before. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> so, and then later I broke a couple of ribs when I fell over. So it was a lot of falling and kicking and African killer bees that attacked us had uh, ticks on the body. I picked off 156 was the record I picked off. You walk in one evening, got infected legs. One evening? Like, one 156 evening. ticks? And then you didn't find all because in the morning you will find in your groin and under your arm where the soft and warm spots, you will find the ones that sneaked by and they are big now full of blood. And I can't control myself, but at night uh, when I'm sleeping, I'm scratching and I was probably dirty under my nails. So I got really bad infection and had to have some very potent antibiotics when I come to Panama. So... So, so you, it was, you're basically pulling the bike through more than riding. Yeah, and and to illustrate how bad it was, uh, this is an air-cooled engine. There's no airflow when you're just sitting still and trying and walk it using the clutch and balancing it and trying to take advantage of the engine to spin the wheel to get up a hill or to get. It started to what I learned later, what is called vapor lock. So it just didn't start, and I was starting to wear out the battery. Unfortunately, it has a kickstart on that R80GS, a kickstart that goes 90 degrees you know, out from the engine, if you're familiar with that. And it's kind of tricky, but I had learned up through the years how to do it. So I ended up taking out the air filter to get better flow through, and uh, that way, without the air filter, and kick-starting it every time, I could conserve the battery. So every time I needed the engine to run, I was able to run it that way. You were the first motorcyclist to go through the gap. I don't even know if anyone else has done it since then. But did you know it at the time that you were sort of making a record here? Actually, I was not the first. It's a man called Ed Colberson uh, from uh, United States. He's passed on since. I got the chance to meet him once. Uh, he had gone through with that Lipton expedition. So basically it ha- he worked on the canal zone in Panama and uh, he made it, he wrote a book that's very good uh, title on Obsession Die Hard. So the Darien Gap was his obsession. He had R80GS too and he tagged on to them. It didn't work the first year. They had to give up, retreat second year the same and then they had some internal conflicts and stuff it's a very good book i obsession die hard with ed colberson you should read it and uh, finally he made it uh, through but he made it his quest to get through there so that's another guy i also know actually on facebook the other day i got the message from a guy that did it the year after i did it and he sent me a picture and i knew he did it because when you come to the border between Colombia and Panama, there's one brass plaque in the middle of the jungle. You can't believe it. You come to this little opening and, there's a, and it just say Colombia. 
So I came from Colombia, but if you come the other way, there's no border crossing, there's no nothing. I mean, this is just pure thick jungle. But he's there taking the classical picture that uh, Joachim and me also did. But he had like, I don't know, I think it was 10 people, local people that helped him. I saw a lot of rope on the picture. I hope I can meet him one day. It could be interesting to hear his story about it. But you know, it's one of these things people say, why the heck did you do that and stuff? Honestly, I did it out of curiosity and money because I had to save my money when I traveled. I was very frugal. I call it cheap <laughs> Norwegian, <laughs> but people say you don't say that about yourself. You are frugal, I guess. And uh, so I wanted to just get through there. I didn't know it was going to be hard like that. It was, I will never do it again if I knew what I was getting myself into. Well, that's what I was going to ask is if, if you would do it again. I mean, also no. you were young then. I mean, what were you, you're in your twenties. Yeah, I was 27 when I started. So can we say I was probably just past 30 at that time. Yeah, it's funny the things that we'll, uh, we'll do, I think when we're younger, maybe, maybe more naive, maybe that's it. Yeah, I think it's uh, naive. And, you know, it's nothing wrong with that. It's, you know, it's one of these things too. I got to be good friend and still good friend with Joachim. He never ridden a bike in his life. Today he has two outdoor uh, stores in Germany. He took his rider uh, driver license when he went back, had been over visiting me here a couple of times, riding motorcycles now, and, you know, most a chance to experience something else. So I don't regret it, but if you ask me today, uh, you had to write a pretty hefty check to get me to do a similar thing <laughs> to that. Well, and, and I guess part of the good thing is, is, I mean, it made incredible photography for you, for your book when you ended up writing a book. Yeah, actually it ended up being the cover of my book, one of the pictures. And, uh, and that's one of the things that is so hard as a photographer, but when you're out like in the Darien gap, you really had to take a breath and say, Hey, wait a minute, I have to document this, this, I'm never going to come back here again under these circumstances. And so I had to try and take the picture and I'm glad I did. And I remember when I came to Panama and I found a lab there to develop the films and the guy that had the lab and he said, can we talk? And he took me out to lunch and he said, this is incredible what you just did. I, he just, of course, saw the pictures and so, so I got to meet that guy again. Yeah. So, you know, one thing lead to another. I stayed for one month in Panama City. It was under the Noriega crisis in 1988. And I had a broken hand and ribs. So I needed to recoup and uh, get rid of my infection in my leg. So one month at Albrook Air Force Base at the Road Knights Motorcycle Club. And, you know, it was my little paradise. I ate one gallon of ice cream every day. <laughs> for a month <laughs> what's that supposed, I'm a kid, I'm a, is that supposed to be therapy uh, yeah that was therapy it was very good it worked great can recommend it <laughs> <laughs> and certainly put some weight on you too after that because you had to have lost a few pounds oh no kidding i needed everything i could get you mentioned taking pictures taking pictures when you're stressed it's really difficult isn't it because you get into a stressful situation all you want to do you're sort of almost panicking to get out of whatever it is it's tough to stop at that point and say well i'm going to i'm going to set up the tripod or i'm going to i'm going to take a shot here that that's a difficult thing to do it is and i think i have a double or 
two ways of looking at it. When I traveled in Africa, I met some Brit, a British and a Dutch guy that was in a Land Rover, and they, they had a Land Rover, so they broke down a lot. <laughs> <laughs> all fun intended uh, and uh, so but I learned something from that British guy and he said every time he broke down he didn't stress and, uh, and he said Helge you have to learn to take a cup of tea and I said oh yeah what do you mean something bad happened sit down take a cup of tea symbolically or actually make a cup of tea or a glass of water whatever the point is don't stress yourself or take it and that's what you can do too when things get tough, you know, we are out and we do things in a haste and usually it's just pile on, it gets worse and worse. And if you do take that cup of tea or stop taking off the tripod, taking a picture, that might calm you down and see the situation in a different light. But I'm like everybody else when I'm in deep mud and stuff and the mosquitoes and flies are biting and I just want to get out of there. But so... Yeah, it takes a lot of discipline to be a good photographer or photojournalist. Yeah, I often talk about this when it comes to, you know, you see these epic videos or you'll read an article about some incredible trip and they they've, they feature the person that, you know, is featured in the story. But what you're forgetting is that that camera person had to do everything that they did and then had to get the photographs or the video as well. And to me, that's like a total unsung hero, maybe the hero in the story. I totally agree. I like to see mountaineering and climbing and stuff. And you see this great shot of this guy hanging with at its with his nails, you know, to the mountain. And but there's somebody at the other side of the lens there. And yeah, you're right. It's the Amazon hero, absolutely. I'm really enjoying this talk with Hal Gay. We're gonna be back in just a minute. Just gonna thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring today's episode to you. Well, if you don't live on the coast, you'll have no idea, probably, but it's raining. And of course, winter has started here and things start to get, this is when we get a little bit of muck here on the coast. But I was running down a trail there just the other day and it's very muddy and very, like a lot of water, standing water and some trees down and whatnot. Anyway, I went to cross over and the bike went down in the slippery mud. When I picked it back up, I noticed that my foot peg was full of mud and like packed with mud because it had just been jammed into it. I stood up on the peg started to ride. And the next time I stopped and looked down, the mud's gone. And that is part of a good design or a well-designed foot peg. IMS has all their, all their foot pegs designed like this for us adventure riders. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Absolutely. Make sure you tell them that anytime you're talking with them, tell them over and over again. So they, they really get it. But, um, you want a quality peg made in the USA, guaranteed for life. I mean, the toughest things you're going to find that racers use as well. Drop by the website, look at the foot pegs. I have them on my bike. It's a huge improvement. I'm just going to leave it at that. www.imsproducts.com. Riding a big bike can be sort of a handful at times, like when it comes to you an off-road or dirt section. Maybe it's slippery, maybe it's rain since you've got in there, or maybe you've got up into some snow that you didn't expect. And now you got to get your loaded adventure bike through with as little drama as possible. While it's those times that some training may make the difference between a fun little rip or a stressful ordeal, or maybe even worse, you could end up hurting yourself. I mean, let's face it. Getting help from a pro in anything is one of the best ways to excel. So why try and teach yourself? 
PSSOR specializes in training riders to handle their large adventure bikes through their base camp and expedition style programs. The website, www.pssor.com. That's Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, PSSOR.com. Drop by and check out the dates for 2018 because they're popular training programs for good reason and they tend to fill up quickly. www.pssor.com. Get some training, become a better rider. When did you end up writing the book? You, you, I guess you went all the way up through North America. Did you end up getting to Alaska? Oh, yeah. I went to Alaska, and in my book, I have a picture where I'm camping in the snow, and I have a story, and also a picture riding in the snow, I think. And uh, I got up there a little late, so I was <laughs> of the last one. And I didn't make it to Prudhoe Bay because Brooks Range were, had snowed in, so I came to Coldfoot, if you're familiar with being up there. I tried, I couldn't, I barely got back to Fairbanks. But yeah, I love Alaska and I went up there on a second trip later. I like the outposts, I like those places. When did you decide that you were going to write a book? You know, I wrote hun- literally hundreds of articles to uh, fund all of this when, and I never thought about the book, but then uh, the editors and people around me and my friends and stuff said, you need to make a book and stuff. I come back to Norway and I, I started to get the name kind of within uh, tra- adventure stuff at that time. And then a publisher approached me and said that they make a one big project every year and they would like to make my book that project, so to speak, because they what really intrigued me. I'm always interested in multimedia presentation. And that seed was planted by Ed Bourne at Eagle Rock High School in Los Angeles. I took photography there. And that's when my photography really got engraved in me. And I wanted to do something with it. So that when I heard that publisher did also multimedia shows, then I was really interested because they had professional people that helped. And we went through all the thousands of pictures I had. And we made a four projector Kodak carousel slide projectors to have 640 slides uh, uh, to present in a 90 minute presentation and travel the country and did that. So I liked the whole process. I think it was a good psychological way of ending my trip and setting an end to it because that was very difficult. Being on the road for 10 years and putting on the brakes and said, okay, Time to make those 10 kids and the picket fence, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it was like, what do I do with my life now? So all of these emotions and stuff, it was good to process through the book because what do you write 10 years? How could you put in that, put that into 208 pages and stuff? So the whole process was very healthy, I think. Was travel done at that point? Did you think that you were finished traveling and you sort of, you did have to get you know, sort of on with life? Yeah, I, it was done the way I was doing it because I had problems getting out of it. I, I was like, I kind of exaggerating, but the, 
it was like I was a zombie, you know. I could go in orbit around the world, and I and I met that zombie, uh, that uh, figure, uh, through a Swiss guy. And it's a long story. I make it try to make it really short. I met him three times in my life, and he had become my guardian angel to say, "Don't do what this guy is doing." He first time I met him, super cool, really neat. Been on the road for eight, ten years, backpacker and traveled very, very light. Met him by accident again uh, in Malaysia. First time was in the Amazonas. Just on the beach, ran into him. What an accident, huh? And no, he's just like blank stare. He's talking to you, but he's not looking at you. He's just looking past you and telling his stories. And it's like a recorded deal. And then I met him five years after that again. And he was just losing it mentally. So my advice to anybody that's listening to this, so when I do my speech or talk on so take this in small portions. If I were going to do it over again, I would have done smaller portions uh, and have bigger breaks in between if I were to see the whole world. Take your time, absolutely, but don't do it in one grasp because you lose connection with yourself and reality of life and you just live there in your little your own world and you don't have time to absorb it all. You need time in between, I think. You mean you it, become more insular by, by traveling? I think so. You become, it's all about you and telling, because every time you meet somebody, I'm doing what I'm doing to you now. I'm telling my story. It's all about me, 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 me. And then you met the next one over the hill and it's like, oh yeah, I've been there, there, did that, that, and the same kind of stories. It become a broken record that just go mm. in circles. And you become, I'm just talking for myself. I don't want to project out there are many wonderful people that perhaps see it in other ways. I can only uh, share my feelings about it. So if I were gonna do it again, I would have done smaller portions because at the end I was getting into that feeling, no, no, I have to conquer more. I have to do that. Not because I was curious. It was more, I didn't know anything else to do. That was become my job, my daily routine to discover new things. I would have liked to have had more stops and aways and breaks. When you're saying about telling your story over and over again, is that because you feel compelled to to sort of let people know where you've been? Or is it just like one of the, the things that, you know, travelers do when you just exchange stories when you meet? You know, if you meet me and you see my bike full of equipment, and you come up, oh, where have you been? And that's where it starts. And that is great, you know, many times. And I'm not trying to make this like a bleak thing. It's just like, over the years, it become this routine and it almost become, I have to see more different places. But when you meet people, you, you of course, you share your stories. It's just like when you come from vacation, uh, you share your stories to your neighbors, to your friends and tell about it. But then you have time to settle in to do uh, your family stuff and things. And you have, you can reflect on what you saw over that uh, two to three weeks vacation, or it was half a year, a year. Uh, sabbatical or whatever but when it's year after year after year it become almost like a blur many of it many things of it if unless you take the time to really think about what you did and process it and so I don't know if that all makes sense but uh, for me 
I think that's what I regret that I didn't, that I stayed too long at the end of the trip. It was more about having it done in a way. When you finished your book tour, you went around, you did the presentation. What did you end up doing? What did you decide? Well, through that process, when I did the book, published it, it was good for me to get out of my system, what I've done, talk and, and also inspire people. And then I thought, what am I going to do? And I met Skip Mascoro that at that time owned a company called uh, Panchovia Motor Tours. No, it's Motor Discovery. It's in, they are in Austin, Texas. Oh, well, yeah. And, uh, he said, oh, you should help me lead tours. And I said, no way, a group of people. I'm a single guy, I like to travel by myself and stuff. And anyway, he convinced me to go to Copper Canyon and I saw the way he conducted his tour. It was kind of intriguing. And then I helped him put together a trip to Tierra del Fuego and to Machu Picchu in South America. And we become really good friends and I did several tours for him. And then I thought, hey, I can do this in a different way. And then I got the idea with Globe Riders and I started that in, like you said, 1998. First tour was in 2000 from Tokyo to Munich. So that's how I got into doing my passion, which was traveling, but now I could do it in smaller portions and also help other people come and see something that was too intimidating for themselves. And uh, I could make a living on it. Does your house have a picket fence and do you have 10 kids? No picket fence, no kids. So that's good. Wow. <laughs> so, so all of that thing you were worried about, you didn't have to worry about it at all. It was just one of those wasted worries. Well, in, re- in reality, it was not a worry. It was more about I wanted to uh, experience something before I got tied down. When I took off, you know, I said there were no panniers and no adventure bike. Per Ola Bang, Pelle, uh, in Norway, uh, nicknamed Pelle, <laughs> he helped me set up my bike. He's a super intelligent, smart engineer, worked in CAD program in the early 80s. He worked on the North Sea oil platforms and stuff, but as an engineer, he constructed my bike and said, we need to strengthen the rear subframe because when you fly through the air five meters and land, then this and this is going to break, but we have to have a fuse in the system, blah, 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 blah. And he made these panniers and everything and uh, outfitted the bike for me. My point was that at the same time, he was married. He built his picket fence, got mm. four kids. I... And it's kind of almost symbolically, I had my little green tent that I was going to use going to Africa parked outside when we start breaking ground for his first house. We put up the foundation and it one day it dawned on me and I said, hey, I'm helping you, Pelle, making your foundation on your life. You are welding on my frame on my bike. That's my foundation on my life as it's going to be for the foreseeable future. So it was very symbolic that way. And in many ways, I looked when I was, had malaria down in Africa or I'd broken some bones or didn't feel very good, depressed, whatever happened on the trip, I was thinking, I wish I had built that house next to Pelle and we could just have a good life back in Norway. 
But you know, he had his tough days too, so it's always greener at the other side. But that's how it all worked out. So it was not that I rejected that uh, prospect of having the 10 kids and stuff, but it never happened. You know, it's another adventure in life that I kind of missed out on. Uh, I don't regret it, but don't take away if you had that adventure. Don't think that you lose on what I was doing. You know, it's always, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so many paths we can take, isn't there? And, and it's not yeah. for everybody. I mean, you know, we talk about people who sell everything and go on trips on the show all the time. And, you yeah. know, they sell off all their worldly possessions. They go off on a trip. It's not for everybody. And it's probably only really applicable to a few people. It's just not something, I mean, everyone's life is not for everyone, but it's it's interesting to hear it. Yeah, and I think what I've learned up through the years, wherever you are in life, appreciate what you have, do the best out of it. And don't think that everybody else that are doing all of these other things that you you just see it from the surface, you think that is so romantic, so fantastic. Hey, it's up and down with everything. And yeah, do the best of what you can with what you have and appreciate that. Yes. And if you, if, you, if you can't appreciate it, do something about it. Don't blame the rest of the world for it. Do something and move on. Yeah, we're lucky enough, all of us and probably everyone who listens to this show is lucky enough to have the choices. I mean, we can do these things. We we have the choices. I mean, it may not be something you want to do, but you have the choice. If you wanted to sell everything and go traveling or you want to completely change your life around, um, mm-hmm. we're lucky. We are. but And it's also a lot of psychological obstacles we put out there. We say, oh, I can't do that. I don't have the money for that. It has nothing. This has nothing to do with money. We are so oriented at the material and money and stuff. In the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned how we can work and stuff and do this. I met this Swiss guy. He had been in Africa for five years. He had nothing to his name. He had a, a XR uh, 500 or something, a Honda, and a raggedy bike and not much. And he said what he did. He came to a hotel or youth hostel or some uh, B&B, and he said, hey, that need fixing up. And he was a carpenter. So he made a deal with the owner and said, stay here for two months. I fix up your place, fix this and this. You give me a, a place to stay and food and a little money. And he moved on. He had done that for five years. I kept in contact with him later. You have to remember there's no email and all of that, Facebook and stuff at that time. But uh, I got a letter from him and said he was back. Now we had a family in Switzerland. He was on the road for eight years. And that's how he fulfilled his dream about seeing the world. But it was not the money that stopped him. It was his attitude that got him there. Well, that's sort of what I, when I was asking about, um, you know, the, the thought of settling down and, you know, was it, uh, did you feel you wanted to settle down and have kids and your picket fence and all that sort of stuff? Or is it more of that feeling from society that you get where people look at you and go, Helge, come on, you're, you're getting on now. You're, you're getting old enough now. You need to settle down. Yeah, that society pressure, I think I left uh, pretty early in my life. I was the rebel in my uh, family. We have, uh, I have an older sister and a nine-year younger brother, and they were more the textbook. They have the, the kids and the picket fence, and I'm best of friends with them now. The, I mean, just I'm not putting them down for that. They just did the traditional one. But I think I were a rebel from my early days. I always did the little more extreme things and... You know, I had a lot of opposition when I took off to Africa by myself on a motorcycle. You can imagine, uh, mom, we had lost our father a few years earlier. So it was not the happiest day for her to see me go. But she was not surprised either, I think. So um, 
I think we are just come from a different mold. Some people are a little more adventurous than others that do things like this. We mentioned you started your company Globe Riders in 98. What was the premise there? What were you starting? What I started was a dream of having a touring company. And from the beginning, one of my goals was I'm not going to make it big. And you know, that's not good. That's not out of the book for business, successful business, I guess. (laughs) But uh, it was like, uh, because I lost my father, he was 61. And uh, it was way too early for him to leave. But I said, I don't want to stress that he had in his life. I want to live comfortably if I can do something I'm passionate about. And that's how I started out. And I got the pretty good name Globe Riders in that. It was the early days. This was in uh, year 2000. And when I did the tour from Tokyo to Munich, 72 days, uh, Skip from Motor Discovery, uh, and he told me later that he talked about us with other travel agents or motorcycle travel guys and stuff. They said, oh, they are never going to survive that tour across Siberia so long. Nobody did those long tours. Look today, everybody is doing long tours like that. So I wanted to be on the forefront, do something that I was passionate about and I felt good about it and I felt I could do a good job. And I've done it now for 17 years. I still only do two tours a year. And I could have grown Globe Riders if I listened to people that were interested in investing it and people that want to work for me and stuff. But no, I want to keep it where I have the passion and I enjoy it. Well, that's tough to do because like you say, that, that is counterintuitive for any business model that anyone looks at. I mean, if, if the first thing you say is, I don't want to make it big, I mean, certainly anybody who's going to back you is going to say, eh, I think you got to keep going. Yeah. No, it is. You have to be stubborn. And I think that's one thing I have in me. I'm pretty stubborn guy. And that's what's gotten me where I am. And the bottom line is, are you happy where you are? Yes, I'm happy where I am. And that's where I put the line. And of course, I dream about this and this and I see others do that and that. And it's always, oh, I could have if that, you know, but bottom line is you have to feel content you know I was just two months on the road with uh, four people I have these custom tours I make sometimes up in the Himalayas and stuff and you know I have to have it 100% with them if they they pay a lot of money to do what they did for those uh, 64 days we were together and uh, I have to give them what I can and also feel good about it myself. If I'm not happy, you know, that reflects on the, on the group. So if I were cranking them out every week, I were doing bang, 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 I don't think I could have it in me. But when I do these two tours a year, that give me time in between and also energy to, to put into the next one. I can really relate to that coming from tourism because that's exactly what what we found is that uh, is that you had to do a lot of trips really to to get the thing to grow and to get to a, a certain size. But the thing is with it is is that I, I'm I'm impressed that you can you can get by with just doing the two, two trips because what we found was that you were either a very very small operator where you really couldn't get enough make enough money to survive or you had to go really big. And, mm. and, and you're sort of pushed into it. I'm surprised that you can manage to still just do two trips on your terms. You just have to charge enough. 
Yeah, I, I guess. But the thing is, people want to have to want to pay it. They're coming to you for a reason. Yeah. And clearly, it's your history, no. right? I mean, that, that has to be it. And, and I guess you're, you're running history with your company. People look at what you've done and people who went on your trip and obviously get that feedback. But you certainly need that to survive on something that, that's more of a, let, let's say, a, a small operation uh, compared to somebody who's running trips every week. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a niche market, the motorcycle adventure touring. And I feel I'm an market within a market because I do this, uh, you know, two months who can stay on the road for two months and you have to have your own bike. I don't, uh, provide bikes, but I do all, and it takes a lot. I build up a team, uh, four to five, sometimes six, seven months ahead of the tour. We start a online forum for the group and we build up the team online before we take off. So now I'm going to Tia del Fuego now in January, end of January. We have had, we've been, had a forum now for three months and we are not leaving before end of January. So we are talking there, discussing the trip. People are getting to know each other. So you build up this. So it's, and I see so many of the people that comes on the Globe Riders Tour, they become friends for life. Some of them take off by themselves, go to Alaska, do other tours in between, but keep in contact. And I get so many returns. Like now I have, excuse me, 10 people on this tour and seven of them have been on tours with me before. So, and uh, there are a lot of them that have been like four, five, six trips and some even do it for the second time and stuff. So, it's a very small market, but the, the people I reach is, is a very unique group and I enjoy their company because they're successful, smart people that are very focused on what they want to do. A lot of strong personalities, but uh, it makes for a colorful uh, event to say it like this. <laughs> Anyone who has had any guiding or even taken a trip, for instance, you've taken any sort of trip that you've went on a guided trip, you know that there's a certain honeymoon period, I guess, in the first couple of days where, you know, everything's going great. But after a while, once people start to, I guess, get comfortable and their real personalities start to show, that gets really tough. Like, and, and I would put that at about a week or two. So mm-hmm. two months into it, yeah, you've got to, you've got to overcome something completely. And, um, and your job as a facilitator, I'm sure, part of your job is to make sure that everyone sort of congeals as a group. Yeah, I feel I'm a therapist many times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's psychology 101. Many, uh, there are two guys that have a conflict and you talk to one privately, another one, and sometimes you just have to call for a meeting with the two and, and solve it. And uh, that's your job, you know, to be the mediator. And I say, I actually found it to be more difficult the smaller the groups are. I, an example, we had the Silk Road where we start in Istanbul and we go to uh, Xi'an, China. It's 56 day trip, almost two months. And I had 18 people there and we were two, uh, Chris and me were the guides. So we had 20 bikes plus a chase vehicle. And you know, you think, oh my God, that's a nightmare. But it was the best trip ever, I think, because people divided up in small groups and we give them uh, GPS tracks, so we don't ride in a group setting at all. We take off in the morning, see you tonight, and follow the tracks and stuff. So it's a lot of freedom in that. But people found out who likes who and stuff. And and up till today, these people stay in contact. We have a WhatsApp group, and 
people are yatting along and saying, oh, you remember two years when we were in uh, Tehran and this and this happened, blah, blah, blah. So it's interesting that sometimes bigger group works out better than the smaller ones when it gets a, and it, touching on just what you say, it gets a little too intimate and you can't escape it. So it's more work with a smaller group than bigger. That's for sure. So are your trips all two months long? Is that how you set them up? I have uh, two trips that are 37. I have Southern Africa as the 37-day trip, and I have uh, Indochina, uh, which is uh, 34 or something. And then the rest are around two months and a little more, up to 68 days. I had one uh, Cape to Paris that I did uh, a few years ago. That was 115 days, and I found out that was a custom tour and an experiment, and I found out that's it, it's too much. That's too much to take in one gulp. So we do know Cape to Cairo, we end up in Egypt instead of going up to Europe. Mm. When you started the company, was that the premise with it right from the very start? Long trips, very few of them? Yeah, that was the premise. It was, I want to do something that nobody else are doing. Uh, why reinvent the wheel and uh, try to compete? I'm fresh, new, out of the box. But I felt I had a lot of qualifications because I built up a network of connection. One of the important things with me is I saw this advertisement years and years ago on TV. And this guy sitting in a big warehouse on a desk. He have a phone and the yellow pages. And you only hear his conversation, which is the key to the advertisement. So he said, yes, we have people for that. And he's flipping through there. Yeah, we can make concrete, absolutely. And then he got another question. You don't know what it is. Sure, we have a property over there. Yeah, my people are right on. And he just is farming it out. Mm-hmm. My, my point is, when I travel like this last trip, I had a local guide in China, Tibet. I didn't have a fancy, uh, fancy decked out uh, chase vehicle from home. I use local vehicles. Not only do I support the economy, but if they break down, they have spare parts there. They they know the road. They can easily pick up another car. I don't have that headache. They know the culture. When something goes wrong, and it does go wrong, we had a crash and uh, a bike destroyed in Tibet. What do you do? Well, the local guys know what to do. They know how to get another truck to take it and where's the hospital, where's this, where's that. And that's how I run it. I use local people all the way and uh, and got a good network of that. So when I did my first tour, I knew that I wanted to go to places where nobody else go and try to break ground that way and see if I can do it. So I had like Cape to Cairo which is very difficult a few years ago. I did three custom tours with small groups because it was still difficult. It was manageable to do with a small group. I did a small different variation where every time, it was just earlier this year in January, February, March that I did a big group and I will do in 2019 again because now the roads have gotten better and I worked out the, the problems with getting visa and permits for Sudan, for example, which is very difficult. So I, before I take a big group, I take smaller group to make sure. But it's, 
I like to go to places where it's difficult and where nobody else go. When you plan a trip, did you actually go and run the route before you do the trip? I do it with the, I did it once by myself, the Silk Road, uh, but normally I do what I call a custom tour. I do a lot of research and I have connections and then I, I find some brave people that normally have been uh, globe riders before they've been on a tour and they are up for a special tour. So uh, sometimes we camp, uh, we, are, we don't have any fixed reservation or hotel, so we are more flexible and they like that kind of thing. Uh, so we have no more than four people plus myself. And that's what I did know to just came back uh, three, no, two weeks ago, I came back from the Himalayas. That was another custom tour, the second time of the Himalaya tour. No, I know it. Next year, I'm going to run a bigger group. I have a lot of interest in the tour, but I don't didn't dare to take a big group because I didn't know the lay of the land. We had to change a lot because of the earthquake in Nepal and landslides in China. So I found a different route and blah, blah, blah. So next fall, I will be there with a bigger group. I have all the GPS uh, routes now, which I record on my GPS, download them to my computer, edit them, and then put them together and upload it when we go there next fall to each member's uh, GPS. And then they know when they take off in the morning from the hotel, that green line lead right to the doorstep of the next hotel. So that's how I do the research for this. But I do it from an economic standpoint or business standpoint. I think it's uh, it worked good for me uh, that I do these custom tours because I'm paid to do my own research. And yeah, it works for everybody because the people that do it too, they love it. I've had... Uh, one group or three people, they've done three custom tours now. They can't get enough of it. Because for them, that, that's the type of adventure they want. Something's a little more um, off the cuff, loose. Yeah, and that's, that's very interesting when uh, touching on that because then we sit at night and we talk about, so what do you do? Well, I do, I have, I have 16 different businesses. So immediately you see this guy, he is the adventure in his business, in his life, everything he does. And of course, he wants an adventure within the adventure when he go with me. He don't want anything that's safe and secure and, uh, you know, that you know they're actually going to make it there. No, he wants something risky. So it's, it's interesting. I learn a lot from my customers, that's for sure. You've been in this industry a long time, really, really since the start. I mean, the adventure, you've, you've seen the adventure motorcycle industry start and build up. What sort of changes, what do, what do you think that has drastically changed as far as adventure motorcycle travel um, over the years that you've been involved with it? You know, I think it's a lot of good, a little, some bad things, but I think mostly what I see is that it opened it, the door for so many more people to make it available because of internet, because of uh, Facebook, uh, uh, people writing books, the long way around, that one really got it lifted up. I think when uh, Julie McGregor and uh, Charlie Bowman went around the world and published this the way they did, it was genius. You know, it was fantastic for the industry. And for a guy like me, it really boosted because there were much more interesting and understanding. You know, you're traveling. Oh, yeah, I saw these British guys. They they did. 
yeah, we are doing the similar thing. People all of a sudden accepted it for another way, even if they were not interested in motorcycling at all. So plus the internet, uh, now you have, I was lucky to be on the team with Tech when we did the Washington Backcountry Discovery Road, did the filming and made the DVD. That series there, I think, have opened up because there are many people that cannot afford time-wise, money-wise to do what I do all over the world. But there are so many beautiful places here in uh, USA or where you are in Canada. I mean, our backyard is fantastic. And these backcountry discovery routes has opened up for the adventure riding big time. So I think it's a lot of good things there. What's bad about it? What is bad is that uh, it's been, it's a lot of pressure when people, we talked about it, uh, the journalism in it, everybody, it's a city journalism uh, trend going on. Everybody has to be on Facebook. You're going to publish the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, it's like people don't see that they are talking to the whole world when they are publishing things. Yeah. Or if they are not, they feel that they are not uh they are nobody. So I see people with too many GoPros, smartphones, this and that. And I say, hey, get rid of the technology. And by the way, my friends call me a geek. So this is coming from a guy that likes technology. <laughs> and So they're all going to be laughing of, when they hear you say this. <laughs> yeah, you're contradicting yourself. Yeah. You? <laughs> no, but really, sometimes I, I do it myself too. Get rid of it. Just enjoy it. Go out throw away that cell phone. You don't need to text and Facebook right this second. Wait till you come home. Yeah, it's going to be an old story because it's, man, it's five five hours since you did it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't need to have it live on Facebook or whatever. So that's what I see is the bad about it. I feel when I talk to young people, when I have a presentation, I have a booth at an event or whatever, and there's like... You can see all the energy, but they are so preoccupied about the presence and how they're going to look for the rest of the world. You don't do it for the rest of the world. You're doing it for yourself. So stop and smell the roses or whatever you say. Do you sort of set down any rules about uh, communication or do do anything like that? I don't like to give rules to people. Uh, All the people I'm traveling with, they are mature. They are... They have lived life. They well, we have some rules, of course, uh, ride with a helmet and safe and stuff. But when it comes to that, do what you want. We have a journal, and I offer to people to write in it, uh, contribute with pictures. Actually, we just posted uh, two days ago the last uh, dispatch from uh, the Himalaya tour, and you know, and we have a tracker that every ten minutes the map on our Globe web page under the journal for each particular tour, every 10 minutes you can see where we are. We can click on that little point and see how fast I'm driving. And all. <laughs> it's, it's just incredible. But family and friends like that. But what I say to the group too is, if you're so inclined and you feel that that is a good outlet for you to process what happened, I'm happy to help with photography or posting. They give us picture and we post it and stuff. But don't feel that as a burden. It's not, you're not a bad person if you're not posting on the journal. This is your tour. Do it on your terms. Some people don't even have a cell phone with them or nothing. And on the last tour, one guy, he said, okay, enough of that. I'm going dark. Or he's just, he put away his cell phone and 
and he told his wife that if you need to reach me, reach me through this and this person in the group, but everything is fine. I just need some quiet, uh, no techie thing going on. So you really have to watch it. It's easy to get sucked up into that because you see somebody else do, oh, this guy, he just went to Alaska, did this, and you feel like nobody. No, oh, yeah. do it Do it for yourself. Don't, don't feel that pressure. That's just stupid. What do you do for fun? You know... Um, I just went through a divorce. It was the hardest thing. And that, that's not the fun part. Okay. <laughs> uh, <Good>. went through <laughs> a divorce. <laughs> and it's the hardest thing I ever done in my life. And, um, I'm very regretful that it happened, but it need to happen and stuff. It's three years. now. I moved off to Seattle. I have to take a ferry, 30 minutes ferry to get up to Hansville, which is just, uh, West of Seattle. And I live right by the ocean. I taken up a hobby that I had. I mentioned I was a boy scout when I was a kid. Um, it's kayaking. So I do sea kayaking. I paddle all over the place, mostly by myself. Uh, but just to give an example, it's not to brag, but uh, uh, I, I really get into it and I get in the zone. But I did 51 miles the other day. There was this fall before this last trip. And that's my... I don't know if it, I just needed to get things out of my system and out there by myself in the zone. I have no technology with me. I have a cell phone, of course, uh, for an, a, a radio that's not on for emergency, but I'm just sitting there, nature, good or bad, you know, stormy, calm, whatever. It, I just love it. And it's almost like motorcycling without traffic because there are very little uh, traffic out here in Hood Canal where I live and. I can just go and go, and uh, that's my new hobby. How about motorcycle riding? Do you, do you find yourself riding when you get home, or, or is work enough? Well, it's interesting you say it, because uh, when I come home, normally I don't. I do it for practical reasons. No, I have a, peri- a ferry to take, then I don't need to line up. It's cheaper. It's more practical. And I tell you, when I'm in traffic, I feel much more secure on a bike I have uh, my second car in my whole life. It's a Eurovan, Volkswagen Camper, and that's my vehicle. And I use it for practical reasons. But since you mentioned hobby and stuff, I have a new twist to my career. And people are looking funny at me. I got the sidecar. Just two weeks ago, uh, right after I came home, I took delivery of a sidecar bike. So on this upcoming trip, I'm going to ride a hack down to Tierra del Fuego. And that is so fun. Um, it, you know, when I got the new bike, uh, the new model, and it's like, it's just a tool. I didn't get the excitement. It's a tool and they're getting better and better, I must say, and I love them. But you now I got this thing and I have to learn things. I'm, I'm not a sidecar rider, so I'm learning how to lean. I took, had to take a license here in uh, Washington State, so I learned it. The, through a class, two year, uh, two days class. So that's my new excitement. You could call it hobby too, but uh, I'm going to use it for work when I go now to Tierra del Fuego. Yeah, I've often talked about getting a sidecar. For us, it would be perfect. Uh, myself and my wife, Elizabeth, could put the two dogs in the sidecar and oh, both ride in the butt. Yeah. It'd just be great. And, it, and it's, there's something different about it too. There's something, uh, I don't know, some sort of romantic appeal, I think, to the whole idea of the sidecar. Well, I've seen it through clients that have come with a sidecar, and I have a very good friend, Mike Paul, in Seattle, 
uh, he lost a leg on one of our trips and uh, way back in 2004 and then strong person as he is come back to it and well i can't ride a solo bike i'm gonna have a sidecar he has three sidecar bikes now he's been a great inspiration for this and he's gonna go on the trip to Tierra fuego too so we're gonna be two sidecar rigs and yeah if i had a dog i always wanted a dog but i travel too much but dogs love sidecar you should get one well uh, the sidecar or the dog i have the dog <laughs> Helga, yeah, if, you yeah. want, if you want a dog just hop up here and <laughs> grab one of our dogs take it with you one's a shepherd and one's a, a beagle so take your size choice and and take it down <laughs> <laughs> if it's one i can just do a tour and give it back to you yeah um, yeah that's I fine do that. <laughs> give us a chance to get on the bike well, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you, Hellgate. Thank you very much. And we'll have to get you back again because I think we could talk for hours about different things. Yeah, it's been a good talk. Uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, I hope to meet you in person one day. You know, it's always this, who are you really? We haven't heard <laughs> anything about you, but I guess uh, that has to be for another time. And right. I hope I get the chance to meet you. Maybe when you come up to get the dog. Sounds good. It's a deal. <laughs> And that was author, adventure guide, and photographer, Helge Peterson. You can find out more about Helge and his company, Globe Riders, at their website, www.globeriders.com. Of course, that link will be in our show notes. And his book, 10 Years on Two Wheels, is available, I think, just about anywhere you find motorcycle books. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for listening and being a part of the show. You know, you can drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. You can check out the show notes for all the shows that we do. We have notes in there and the links to the things that we talk about. All of that available at the website. I encourage you to drop by and look at it. We also have our other show, The Raw Show, that you can go to, and you can listen to all those episodes. And, and by the way, all the podcasts that we do, they're available just about anywhere. I don't think there's any place that has podcasts that doesn't have our shows listed in there. So just drop by and download. And if you have any questions about what you've heard, you've got any comments, maybe even you want to give us an idea idea for something on the show. We get um, emails and, and contact through social media all the time from listeners, and we love it. We want more. So if you have any thoughts, let us know what you like to hear on the show even. Just fire us off an email, drop by the website, fill out the, the form, however you want to contact with us. We absolutely love hearing from you, and we get some great information and great ideas from people just like you, listeners just like you. 
Now, I just want to throw out there that the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. I always say, you know, think about the value you get from everyday things you buy in life. Those small things, the coffee, the donut, the the sandwich, whatever it is, what value you get from them. And think about our show. And if you get value um, and, and you feel it's worth it and you can afford it, because if you can't, then obviously don't do it. But if you can, drop by the website. Anything $10 or more will get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on the show. So we got a bunch of different incentives there. And we're also signed up for Patreon at the, at the request of listeners um, so that you can do monthly um, support if you want to do that. Anyway, the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Now, no excuses. Get it there. Ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. See you next week. Hi, this is Warren Miller, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 